Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Anybody Out There, recorded by Sadler Vaden and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Audley Free. Musician and songwriter Audley Freed launched his career with the band Cry of Love. Their debut album, Brother, on Columbia Records, spawned two number one and two top ten AOR hits, including the Freed co-written Peace Pipe, named by Billboard magazine as one of the top 50 AOR songs of all time. After a second Cry of Love album, Freed went on to join the Black Crows. Spending three years with the band, he performed on the album Lions and the gold-certified double-live album Jimmy Page and the Black Crows Live at the Greek. He has toured as a guitarist with Jacob Dylan, Peter Frampton, Joe Perry, the Dixie Chicks, and many others. He has also played on albums by Rodney Crowell, Allison Krauss, Kenny Chesney, and more. Audley has been a member of the bands Big Hat and Trigger Hippie and has been a member of Sheryl Crow's band for more than a decade. As a songwriter, his music has been recorded by Chris Robinson, Government Mule, Leonard Skinnerd, Kid Rock, Allison Moorer, Train, Gary Allen, Wade Bowen, and many others. Part 1 Hey Songcraft listeners, today's episode, like so many others, is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com and find out what they can do for your song. No matter what genre you write in, they can help you make a demo or fully produced record that you will be absolutely proud to share with friends, family, or even pitch to professional artists. Dozens of Songcraft listeners before you have taken advantage of their services and have been more than pleased. We've given you some of the testimonials on air. I'm sure we'll do it again. But find out what they can do for you. Hit up our friend Justin and his team at PearlSnapStudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first recording. Paul, it's good to uh, actually see that you're alive today because I know that you uh, are battling a flu or, or some sort of evil. Yeah, man. I got really sick this weekend. Uh, you guys can probably hear it in my voice. Um, and I was laid out, man. My fever was about 103. I was kind of hallucinating, not like in the fun way. Um, <laughs> it was it was a huge drag. But I, I hold up in bed. I, I sat there scrolling through my phone. <laughs> you know, it's the fun thing we do now when we're sick. Uh, you know, one thing I did have to kind of like give me a little bit of fun in the process of it was this... Uh, this unexpected new Black Crows single. I didn't even know they were dropping a song. And then yeah. uh, all of a sudden this thing comes out and it's killer. Uh, yeah, I was surprised too. And and you and I have been Black Crows fans for a long time. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't even like, oh, hey, here's the news. There's going to be a new Black Crows single uh, coming out in two weeks. Like they just dropped the single. And, yeah. I, you know, sometimes in a situation like that, there's a little trepidation. You're like, ugh. I love this band. It's been a long time since they've put out new music. Is this going to live up to the expectations? Um, but man, yeah. I, it's it's good. Well, you know, there's something maybe to the fact that they did this big world tour for the, you know, I don't know what, the 150th anniversary of uh, <laughs> Shake Your Money Maker. I don't remember what year it was or whatever. Right. But but there was, there was a big anniversary of that record and they went and they toured all those songs. And it certainly seems to have put them back in, in the mode of the classic era because uh, this song sounds like it could have been written and recorded in the early 90s. It's got that great, you know, which, you know, by the way, the stuff that was recorded in the early 90s felt like it could have been recorded in the early 70s. I mean, that was the thing about the Black Crows. So 
but it, it has all the energy and all the just great kind of rock swag that all their best stuff does. And uh, yeah, I, I think the song is super fun. Yeah, so the song's called Wanting and Waiting, and it's got, like, serious Jealous Again vibes. Uh, yeah, totally. Which was actually, Jealous Again was my favorite song from uh, the Black Crow's first album, Shake Your Moneymaker. And um, it, uh, it it totally harkens back to that, although it's a little rawer, um, yeah. which is cool because I really love, for me, peak Black Crow's was, like, you know, Amorica. I think the, that was, like, such a great record because it was, like, rough around the edges, um, Shake Your Moneymaker was great, but it was a little slicker. Um, so to me, this is like if if Jealous Again was a little rawer, which is like exactly what I want yeah. the Black Crows to be. Um, and I was actually funny enough a couple days ago just talking uh, with somebody about um, this memory of I think Shake Your Moneymaker came out in in. 89, uh, 89, 90, somewhere in there. So I was like a young teenager, I guess. And um my dad and mom and I had gone down to uh, Destin, Florida, which uh, if you grow up in Nashville, then yeah, you've been then to Destin. the most, yeah, the most exotic vacation you can hope for is, is <laughs> Destin. Um, if you grew up outside of Nashville, you're going to go to Panama City. Uh, so th- that's, <laughs> right. you know, um, but anyway, so we're, we're in Florida and uh, I had been listening to the Black Crows. I'd gotten their first record, I, I guess, on tape. Um, and so we're in a store and the song hard to handle comes on and I go and I find my dad and I'm like, Hey dad, dad, check this, listen to this song, listen to this song. This is this band, the black crows. They're really good. Well, my dad starts singing along to every lyric in the song. And I'm like, that, that blew my mind. Cause I'm like, how would my old, old dad, who was probably <laughs> 40, uh, <Yeah. laughs> how would my old dad know you know, this cool new band, like, and it, it gave him massive credibility points. My jaw was just on the ground that my dad knew the words. And that was when I learned that, uh, that was actually an Otis Redding song and, uh, (laughs) not a black crows original. My dad knew the words from the, from the Otis Redding version. Uh, but I still thought he was cool, even though, uh, you know, I was the dumb one for not knowing about Otis Redding. So the black crows have, have been, uh, you know, an important band in my life and in, even in our friendship, I think you and I kind of bonded like, when Southern Harmony came out, like that was a that was a big bonding record for us. Yeah, I, I think if if that record had not come out, we'd still be enemies. Um, what's What's <laughs> funny about uh, Hard to Handle and and just the thought of that cover happening at that time, you know, was that that song was probably about twenty one or twenty two years old, uh, right? When when they covered it, and it seemed, <laughs> of course, like they were reaching back into just a. a, a a previous, you know, atmosphere in time to have reached right. back into the black and white days and record a song, <laughs> which would basically right. be like now if somebody covered, I don't know, you know, uh, something off the NSYNC uh, celebrity record. I mean, it's... <laughs> You're right. It's crazy right. now it's, to think about how the passage of time works, but yeah, it's it's crazy that the Black Crows version is is now like 35 ish years old. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. But uh, for anyone um, who's not a Black Crows fan, um, and you're kind of laboring through this part of the conversation, I make no apologies um, because they're an amazing band, and this is basically why we started this podcast was so we could just sit around and talk about our favorite music. So. Um, <laughs> But, you know, one of the reasons that this is so pertinent to our conversation today is because we're actually talking to someone who has been one of the Black Crows. 
Um, yeah. Oddly Freed, who uh, not only toured with these guys, but he, he played on the Lions record. Uh, fantastic guitar player. Uh, and yeah. I would say even just sort of deepened what I felt like was my connection to the band. Uh, because now I feel like there's like a personal stake, man. It's like we know a crow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, and not only, you know, knowing that we got a chance to interview Audley, but that Audley actually listens to this podcast. Uh, he's a, a Songcraft listener um, from from back before we even met him. So, um, and there's there's history even even going back beyond that. Some of that will be kind of revealed in the uh, in the interview itself. Uh, and then um, we also have uh, for our Patreon supporters can hear a little bit of behind the scenes kind of stuff. So if you go to Patreon.com/songcraftshow and you support us on Patreon, you can get even more backstory to how this uh, interview came together and what the the deep background is uh, with with Audley Freed and the Bomar family in particular, which is which is some interesting stuff. Um, so check that out if you want to hear uh, even more about how this interview came together. But um, this is a, this is a fun one because Audley's just such a nice, cool guy. So cool. And there's so much more to him than having been a part of the Black Crows. I mean, currently he plays with uh, Cheryl Crow's band. Um, before that, he was in a band called Cry of Love, which had some really cool stuff, some stuff that, that uh, I was also a fan of back in, in the day. Um, written songs with people like Leonard Skinner for Pete's sake. I mean, yeah, he's been everywhere. He's, he's yeah. kind of, I, I don't think anybody doesn't like oddly. I think he's one of the most likable guys, uh, in the business and just an absolute shredder on the guitar. I mean, who could stand up there on the stage with Jimmy Page playing, you know, Led Zeppelin songs with the Black Crows. That's what Oddly has done. Uh, he, he stood up there back to back with Jimmy Page playing Led Zeppelin songs. Uh, oh, yeah. Who, who else can do that? Well, and and we went to the Willie Nelson 90th birthday party uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. You and I went together. And uh, amazing house band put together by Don Waz uh, with guys like Ben Montinch from the Heartbreakers playing keys. Well, guess who's up there playing guitar? Oddly Freed, yeah. backing up yeah. every artist that you can possibly think of from you know Miranda Lambert to Snoop Dogg uh yeah. and he's up there you know in in the house band and he's just one of those guys that that crops up and once you know him you start spotting him like oh yeah cuz he's just a great he's a great player he's a great addition and and he writes songs the way that he plays guitar which is to say uh very tastefully and mm. you know it's not obnoxious and 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 over the top but it's just like just sort of dripping with good taste uh yeah. and he's one of those players that like once you're kind of hipped to oh there he is again he's just uh he's just just a great a, a great musician and a great guy yeah so uh, hopefully you guys will all listen to this episode and by the end of it consider oddly your friend as well because uh i i think it's going to kind of come across that way he just his humility and his grace uh really came through in that conversation uh but just just remember behind all the humility is just a certified badass <laughs> Absolutely. And uh and yeah, and, and if you do, you know, feel like you've become friends with him, here's his address. Uh stop by no, just kidding. Just kidding, <laughs> oddly. Um but no, this was this was a lot of fun for us, and uh, and we mentioned in the interview, but it's the first time that you and I, Paul, have done uh, uh, an actual interview in our hometown live uh, in Nashville with with a guest, which is kind of wild that that's not happened before. Um, that's but right. we went over to to his place and uh, and hung out, and anyway, just uh, just great dude, great interview. So um, check it out, part two.
Oddly, welcome to Songcraft. Great to be here. I am honored that you guys would ask me to be a part of something that, well, it's good company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, starting I know with that, you guys. <laughs> I know that you uh, listen to the podcast, sure do, yeah. which is great. Uh, we've talked before about different episodes and and things that that you've heard, and this is a historical occasion. Uh, we are currently sitting in uh, Audley's music room at his house in Nashville. And if you listen to this show, folks, you know that Paul and I both grew up in Nashville, even though we've lived in, in Los Angeles for years. This is the first time we've ever done an in-person Songcraft interview in our hometown of Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. So making history here today. I, this might be the last one. I <laughs> we think we're just going to, we're going to finish the whole podcast on this interview right here because we can't top this experience being back home. So, oddly, welcome to our final episode of Song. <laughs> um, I'm not taking any responsibility for that. Um, well, you are a guy who wears a lot of hats uh, in the music world. And I want to talk a little bit about um, just kind of the space you occupy, not only as a songwriter, but also as a musician. You've worked as a front man. You've worked as a side man. You've worked as behind the scenes, in the spotlight, uh, writing songs, playing other people's songs, playing live, playing sessions. Um, and I want to just kind of get a little bit to the heart of um, where this kind of began. You know, there's always that thing where everybody hears music when they're a kid, but not every kid gets hooked on it in the way that people like we get hooked on it you know where you just fall in love with it so what what was it you know in your growing up years that really got your attention and made you think man this is this is something that maybe I want to do you know I think about that now I kind of have lived my life just putting one foot in front of the other one and a bunch of things have just happened you know yeah. what I mean uh I, I was always um interested in the guitar I remember my mom buying me a toy guitar uh maybe a couple of them when i was uh too young to play it and they uh, you know probably weren't meant to be played anyway yeah. but there was just something about it that attracted me and then when i got old enough to start paying attention to the radio and i'm from a generation that was where am radio was still it was like the last I guess sort of the the last vestiges of of, of that being something that was uh, in everybody's car, yeah. uh, uh, or on the uh, or or ha having transistor radios in between commercials, you could hear on one station. I remember hearing "Family Affair" by Sly and the Family Stone, "Heart of Gold" by Neil Young, "Let's Stay Together" Al Green, "Roundabout" by Yes, Jeez. and "Delta Dawn." <laughs> it's all on the same station, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, so you'd hear all that in one place, and I don't know, there was just something magical about it. I was like all in, you know, mm -hmm. that it, it, there was just something that spoke to me in a way that other things didn't, although plenty of other things did, you know, when you were a kid, comic books yeah. and uh, football and, and the things that kids are into. Yeah. You know, I was into all of that too, but uh, I... I, I really don't know why it was the thing that just loomed larger than the other things. Mm. So once you kind of got to the point where you got a guitar of your own, you started learning, you know, how to play these songs and stuff. What, what, I mean, were you spending 
hours a day just absorb? I mean, did it become the focus at that point? Um, I think that it became a big focus. Like I said, I was really lucky in in that I did other stuff that, that kids do. I played yeah. basketball in high school. I worked at the grocery store. I rode around and you know with my friends and yeah. and uh, and had a normal teenage life. I I didn't my my uh, situation was not one where I felt like I had to lock myself in my room and escape from the world by doing this. It was just part of my world, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, uh, and, but yeah, I guess at some point I, I got, as they would say where I come from, sort of ate up with it. You know? and, <laughs> yeah. and so, yeah, I, I, I did spend a lot of time picking up the needle and moving it back on the records and, mm. and uh, trying to learn the vocabulary, so to speak. So, yeah, it became the th- a real focus for me, and it became an identity thing for me. Sure, you know. Well, the- yeah, I mean, as as Nashville natives, we were growing up here, and you could throw a rock and hit a guitar player you you still, know, you anywhere still you turn. You know, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Which I imagine North Carolina wasn't quite the same way. No. So there is an identity to being a guitar player, um, and. You know the 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 natural next thing to do then is to start a band, which is really when you're like, now I'm in deep, like I've I've got a band. Well, yeah, and and it's interesting because there were no there were there were two people in my county that played guitar besides <laughs> me that that I can remember, and another guy over in another county that was a mentor of mine, uh, this guy Ernie Johnson that I've spoken about before, uh, and he was a guy that really helped me along. But yeah, it, and that was the goal. You know that was that was the the thing to shoot for was let's get in a band. It's actually surprising that you became as good as you became with that little competition. <laughs> I'm not a competitive guy. Do you know what I mean though? Like it, like the, it's often that's the thing that drives people to greatness. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, yeah, no, that was never my focus. Um, competing maybe with myself. Yeah. You know, uh, if that makes any sense, that's some armchair psychology for you. Yeah, well, that's a, <laughs> it takes a really singular focus, though. To uh, yeah, I guess it does. You know, um, I loved it so much. You know, and and when I could figure out a song that I really loved and I could play along with it, I mean, that, that was a feeling like no other at yeah. that time. You know, uh, and you know, and just the romance of it all. Uh, you know, I wanted to play in a band, and we had our, a couple of little aggregations when I was in high school and junior high. That was the that was the thing, you know. That was the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about a rock and roll band was at that age. To most kids, you know, the the generation before me, it was the Big Bang with the Beatles. You know, that was the yeah. thing. I, we didn't really have that. I never had a, a, a moment yeah. like that. But just the appeal of the lifestyle of being in a rock and roll band. And when I say lifestyle, I was not aware of a lot of the unsavory things that come along with that supposedly you know uh yeah. it was i don't know it, it it just seemed like um that you could that it would just be exciting and electric and it is yeah, yeah. um so in 1989 you formed the band cry of love in raleigh north carolina i believe yeah and you guys I, yeah uh, late 88 which i guess qualifies as basically 1989 basically and believe me, I can't remember anything. But I <laughs> well, so you guys didn't put out your debut uh, record, Brother, until 1993. So you have basically all of 89, right, up until 93. So you've got this period of time where you're playing in a band. And 
I think the reason I asked about like, were you a guy that spent hours in your bedroom is because you play like a guy who spent hours in your bedroom. And, but now like, now you're playing Git, you're a live band. You're not a recording band yet. You know, you are defining who you are as a band. I would imagine that the experience of playing live, both as a player and also as a songwriter is like this cauldron where you're defining who am I as a player? Who am I as a songwriter? Cause I'm out here all the time playing and getting audience reaction. Absolutely. And you know, the funny thing about that is, is that still to this day continues on some level. It's not as much of a supernova. Is that a good way to put it as, yeah. as it was at that time? Sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to back up a few years before that, I kind of cut my teeth. I played in some bands in college. I went to college at University of North Carolina at Wilmington and graduated. I have a history degree. And and I played in cover bands in college. And, and the funny thing about that is is that we would rehearse interminably, like hmm. for months and months, to get ready for our one gig before somebody quit, you know, or, <laughs> or whatever. And now I think about the amount of, you know, how much higher the stakes are on certain gigs that you just kind of rehearse a little bit and right. then you go and play. And right. It's funny how that has come. It's it's like the inverse. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> but but so I did that in college, a lot of practicing, meeting people, you know. Um, and then I played in cover bands that traveled back in those days. There used to be a circuit of you could go out and play three or four sets a night playing cover bands and go all around the southeast and some in the Midwest, which I think probably – you guys would know this, correct me if I'm wrong, was like the evolution of like the frat bands that played in the 60s, 50s and 60s, right? right. It was kind of the yeah. same thing, you know? Yeah. And that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I don't think that any of that world exists anymore. But, that, but you know, there was all these people on this circuit that would come through Wilmington every couple of months. And, and so I did that for a couple of years. Yeah. And playing three, four sets a night, every night, six nights a week, um, tra traveling all over the place. So the live thing was something that uh, that I had experienced a lot before we ever started the crowd club band. Our, our whole MO there was like, let's this is going nowhere. You know, if we're going to really try to make the next step, we need to quit doing this so yeah. we can have enough energy and be in one place long enough yeah. to try to form a, 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 a band and, and, and figure out, you know, what we're doing. Yeah. Well, you guys released your debut album, Brother, in 1993 on Columbia Records. Um, and the single Peace Pipe ended up being a real hit for you guys. And I'm curious, you know, after all that kind of woodshedding, playing live and putting the songs together, was that the song that got you your deal? Um, what, did it kind of work that way? Or or was it playing live that, that the label came out and was like, you guys have something? And 
that I think was on the demo. I think we had a three song demo that was not mixed. And there was still some overdubs to go on it or whatnot. And I have a buddy named Pepper Keenan that was in this band called Corrosion of Conformity. And they used to rehearse next door to us. And he was like, man, we're going on tour. You got any music on? Take some music with me. And I said, I've got this unfinished thing of these demos. Just don't play it for anybody, man. It's not done. First thing he does, goes to a party in New York, plays it for the, for a guy. He calls me up. He goes, hey, man, this guy freaked out on your demo. He's going to be calling you in. <laughs> it was a guy named Josh Sarbin who was our A&R person. So he called and said, I need to come see the band live. So that's how that worked. At first, it was it was demo. We didn't really beat the bushes um, and play live a lot. Mm. Um, we, had, we bought a van and... Went around a little bit to some towns that were within, you know, three or four hours driving distance. But, um, our, you know, we rehearsed a lot and, and, and learned how to write these songs. And, and our, our focus was really more on that. We didn't d- develop a regional. There was no regional following. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, this idea that you were kind of protective of the demo and like, I don't want anybody to hear that. And then a song like Peace Pipe, which has, you know, uh, you can get into the lyric with me a little bit if you want, but it's it's not just a song about partying and, and chicks and whatever. The song's got deep lyrical connections to, you know, sacred ground and, and the things that it's talking about. So it, were you protective of that? Even, you know, like maybe a little reluctant to, to hand it over and say, this is now a label product and it's going to be, you know marketed and we're going to be a, a band that people hear on the radio or something was that something you sort of held on to tightly or were you like no let's do this we want to hit i want to be on the radio i want to do the whole thing i mean let me be clear about that the reason that i didn't want anybody to hear it was because it felt like it wasn't finished mm. as far as just the actual recording and the mixing of, yeah. the, of the thing no i mean we wouldn't have made the song and recorded it if if we didn't want some somebody right. to, to, to pay attention to it if that that makes sense, makes sense yeah you know Yes, yeah, so we got to do what we wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, there was never any meddling in that. And we were not asked to copy or replicate or, or, or chase down anything because uh, the, these, these, well, these guys are having great success doing right. this, you know. Right. And uh, none of that huh. um, was, was part of the equation. Yeah. Um. You know, listen to a song like Peace Pipe or Bad Thing, which also performed uh, well. And um, a lot of these songs were written uh, by you and Kelly Holland, who was the lead singer of the band. At that time, as a songwriter, what was kind of the division of labor for you guys? Did you sit down together in a room or did you kind of each bring your stuff and the other guy would finish it? Well, how did the just the process kind of work in those early years as a writer? Um, Well, there, there was... It was different for everything. Like uh, the the main way that I remember it is that we would just get together and work on these pieces of music, and then figure out the lyric thing and the melody thing after the musical bed had been put together. Yeah. You know, um, we would go down to our practice space and work on these ideas. And, and record them all over Jambox. And then just like drive around in your car and listen to this mu- this music, you know, and try to come up with ideas for, for vocal parts. And and, huh. and and so that was one uh, very common 
way that, that we went about putting music together. But uh, it was different from song to song. Peace Pipe was a thing that I I came up with that riff one day at work at the guitar store that I worked at. I, I, I do remember that very clearly. Huh. And it was on a Friday, and I remember going over to our bass player Robert's house, and Kelly was his roommate at the time, and saying, hey, I got this idea. And I remember... Um, playing that what became the melody of the chorus just just jacking around playing on uh on guitar and kelly pointed and said that's what you should sing it's what we should sing over that you know and uh and then so we had a rehearsal on sunday night and that was on friday and i'm thinking i'm remembering this correctly and by the end of the rehearsal we had not all the lyrics and everything, but the whole arrangement and, and all that was was put together. So um, a song like Bad Thing was basically, that was the brainchild of our producer, John Custer. That was his his thing. And then I can't, Kelly and I maybe contributed something yeah. to that. Uh, uh, a song like Too Cold in the Winter, Kelly sang me the riff yeah. to that. And I remember, that was the very first thing that we ever put together. Uh, and we sat down... Uh, at my house uh, one night and came up with that whole thing and then he took it away and, and wrote the lyrics. Um, so it was kind of all over the place, but it usually started with music. Yeah. Uh, did, nobody went to school for music in the band, I'm guessing, right? Uh, not that I know of. And no. this idea, I don't think we make enough of this in music, that, that people who are trained by the radio, basically trained by the radio, come together and Kelly can say, that's the part that I'm going to sing over. That's the hook. And then we agree upon that. And then it becomes a hit and he was right. And and the whole industry is built upon these instincts of these people that are just basically trained by living and loving music. And it, it's really pretty incredible to me that, you know, that, that we find ourselves in a place where, where teenagers are making the records that corporations are built on. And, you know, we, we look back and we think that that's just a normal thing in rock and roll, but it's actually pretty crazy to me. That you guys, you know, knew. Yeah, this feels like a hit. Well, I'm not going to say that 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 we knew that it felt like a hit, but I feel like that we did feel like with that song that we were on something. That it felt right. It, that, yeah, there was there was something about that that from from the inception. Yeah, it felt a little a little special uh, to to me. You could ask the other guys. In, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, you guys did a, a another record. Um, Sugarcane uh, was the single off that. A song I, I believe you wrote uh, solo, and um, you know it was it was two albums for that band, and you moved on to a, a lot of other things. And so we're going to move on to a lot of other things because you know there's there's much to talk about. Um, but you mentioned you worked at a at a music store, yeah, and, uh, and Harry's Guitar Shop, Harry's in Guitar Shop in Raleigh. Well, my first cousins. Uh, Eric Deaton and Paul Bomar were two of your students. That's right. When I was in middle school and those guys were in middle school, you know, we were all budding music geeks. And I remember them coming to Nashville and we'd be all up in my bedroom with our guitars <laughs> and, you know, who's going to have to play the bass on this one? You know, we all want to <laughs> play guitar. And at the time we were all like, you know, into like hard rock, you know, we were you know, all hard rock dudes. We've all gone different directions completely. But 
we had a lot of fun in those days. I have good memories of being up in the bedroom with my cousins and, and they'd be like, oddly showed me how to play this. I was like, what's his name? Oddly. Right. So I've been hearing your name since even before cry of love. And the reason we're even sitting here now is because we met through, uh, my cousin Eric, through Eric and, yeah. uh, and you know, it's just wild. Like now to think, uh, you know, there they were talking about their guitar teacher and showing me what their guitar teacher showed them. And I'm showing them what my guitar teacher showed me. And it's the best, you know, isn't it? I man? mean, it's yeah, wild. It's, it's best, just crazy. Yeah. Like how the world works. Yeah, it really is. And you know, I have been listening to you guys podcast before we met. Yeah. Uh, and had your book. Yeah. The Southbound, uh, Southbound the Southern rock book uh, before we met. So it's, you know, and now I see Eric, who was doing really, really well for himself. And yeah. Is a, Playing uh, with the Black Keys, among others. Yeah, and I just saw him play his own gig the other night, and it was fantastic. Yeah. And it's so pure and so honest. Yeah. Uh, and he is doing what he – it's Eric. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's doing the, what he was put on the planet and to he do. He might yeah. be the best person. Maybe so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he – Not much argument there. Yeah, yeah he is a, just a, a great – I just love being with him. Absolutely. Every time, man. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. And as his teacher, what percentage do you make from his current income? (laughs) Didn't we sign an NDA about that? (laughs) (laughs) I think the, the, the thing that's really the most wild to me about this is in about 1989, about the time that, that cry of love was, was coming together as a band before you guys even put out a record. The Black Crows put out their first record and Shake Your Moneymaker for me and also for Paul uh, was a eye opener yeah. because our generation, you know, we learned about the faces through the Black Crows, you know, like we went back and we're digging into this stuff based on what the, and I would say the Black Crows were hugely formative for me in sort of kind of almost pulling me out of sort of the hair metal and into some like real roots rock. And Paul and I hugely bonded over the black crows when we were in high school. So after cry of love, oddly freeds in the black crows. How did, how did that happen? I went and auditioned, huh? you know, uh, I was recommended through some mutual friends and went down to Atlanta, played Chris Robinson was not even there. Really? Huh. And uh, I went down and played, and that was maybe in October of 90-something, 97. Didn't get a call to come and work with those guys until like May or June of the next year. Oh, wow. Because they were making that By Your Side record, and mm-hmm. Rich played all the guitars on that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, I, I, you know, that's a simple an answer as I can give you because it is the answer. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know what we hadn't talked about was that, you know, with cry of love, you had toured with Robert plant with Aerosmith with ZZ top. And so, you know, I'm thinking that an, an audition like that sounds nerve wracking to me. You know, it's a band that's already making a lot of noise out there and you get a chance to go in and kind of show what you've got, but you've already kind of been in the presence of some of your heroes played in front of them. Um, probably some of your influences as well. Oh, yeah. Joe yeah. Perry's out there and you're playing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, by now I have the perception that you, that you can walk into about any room you want to and, and feel comfortable picking up your instrument and doing your thing because you've 
But at that time, that must have well, been a nerve-wracking situation. Believe me, <laughs> you know, we're not going to the jazz club and right. going to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, were you surprised when you got the call and said, "Hey, you got it. You're in the band." Um, I can't say that I was because I was a fan hmm. first and foremost, and that first record of theirs did make a. It was a bit of a sea change, you know, uh, for a lot of young rock and roll people because like you said it was the landscape was fairly dominated by these things that were on mtv that were kind of watered down versions of yeah. the same thing yeah, uh, yeah and you know it's a cliche breath of fresh air but it really kind of was there yeah. was a few records in that time period that yeah. that felt like that that moved the needle in a, in a to a to a different place yeah but i can't say that i was surprised because since i was such a fan um I had listened a lot to the music, and I don't know. I just it felt really relatable to me, mm. and I felt like that I understood it, and that I could contribute uh, in a positive way as a player. Yeah. Uh, certainly not overconfident. Certainly would not have been surprised if I didn't get the gig, mm. but it was not as if I was, you know trying to get a job in a, in a jazz fusion band where I would be completely lost. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that anybody who is a fan of rock guitar is going to be uh, a fan of Jimmy Page. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they better be. It's, yeah. it's required. Um, and the Black Crows, of course, played a number of shows with, Jimmy Page at the Greek Theater. Uh, that that's the one that was recorded and releases an album. Here you are, playing with Jimmy Page. Talk about that experience, man. You know, I I, I like to say that I don't feel like that I have still fully put together that that happened, as the kids would say, quote unquote, processed it. Uh, <laughs> And I think at this point, I probably never will yeah. to any great degree. But uh, for me, it was, you know, um, it was exhilarating and really nerve-wracking at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the nerve-wracking part kind of went away mm-hmm. after a while because he made us feel at ease. Me, I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. You know, and and we had, I think he trusted us mm-hmm. and so uh that of course makes a big big difference yeah. when playing music with people and with interacting with them personally uh but it was really you know lack of a better way to put it something else i mean i, I grew up with that mm-hmm. um his persona to a young to a you know adolescent white dude in North Carolina <laughs> in 1976, 75, 76 was, you know, it was, it was like a superhero, yeah. you know, like, like a mythological figure almost, you know? And, and, uh, so it was really kind of hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to hype it too much as far as that goes, but I can't really overstate it. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, uh, the first night that we played in the States, if I remember correctly, was at the Roseland in New York. We played three nights there. And I just remember, I think the first song was Celebration Day. Mm-hmm. And I just remember 
looking to my left and I was like, that he, that's him over there playing yeah. this and people going crazy. And it was just, you, you know, you want to talk about electric. That's the only word yeah. I know to use Yeah, all, all night. But I just remember specifically that you guys ever have that thing where there's just like a flash, a mm. moment where yeah. you're just like, Whoa, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was in, in, something else when you talk about when you think about songwriting i think a a lot of the ways that people become good songwriters is by understanding how songs work and a a good part of that you know you talked about being in a cover band and when you're in a cover band you got to learn cover songs and when you're sitting there or even in your bedroom as a kid talking about dropping the needle and going back and forth you're studying like at the time you're not conscious of that as a kid you're like i'm just trying to learn this part but to learn a part, you're you're deconstructing that song and you're figuring out how this song is put together. And I think that we're, as kids, kind of learning how to be songwriters by osmosis, by deconstructing other people's songs and figuring out how those songs are put together. Um, and I think that uh, we've probably all, who are musicians or songwriters, had that experience of trying to figure out parts and figure out how this song is put together you were figuring out Jimmy page parts in front of Jimmy page. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I had the training that I had before <laughs> all that uh, came about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You know, and, and you know what it is. You were saying something Paul earlier about uh, music school that, you know, that's a form of ear training that yeah. you're just not, it's just not formal. Yeah. You know, it's also not as comprehensive yeah, as yeah. if you went to, to school and, 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 and learned it there, but it is a form of ear training. So yeah, those, that skill set came in really handy when it came, when it was crunch time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. In, in the middle of 10 years gone, the song from physical graffiti, there's a, there's a part in there. The song has a lot. It's a bit of an epic, but there's one section where there's some harmony guitars. Yeah. And if memory serves, there's five guitar parts, but two, one is a main rhythm, and then there's maybe an, a, a, a pad behind it. Mm. I had sussed all of it out. Now you can go on YouTube, ironically enough, and that particular section, I don't know if it's been pulled, but yeah. you could find it. I have it on a bootleg hard drive that somebody gave me, uh, and all the parts are separated out. It's him at home on his four track or whatever it was like <laughs> writing the orchestrating yeah. the thing. Uh, so you can just go there and go, Oh, there it is right there. You know, all <laughs> of them are separated, but uh, I had worked it all out and uh, Jimmy first name basis came to me and, and, and said, Hey, you know, there's two other parts cause we had the three main ones covered. Yeah. Do you think that we could have Ed, the keyboard player, do these other parts and I said well sure this was like a year after we had originally played the song this was for the second tour in the states and so of course I couldn't remember what they were these other parts I'd written them down in my way of writing them down somewhere but probably didn't have access to it at the time so off we go to the dressing room where there's a humongous stereo in a road case and I'm sitting on the floor with the balance knob on the stereo going back and forth and back and forth. I think probably with a CD at that time. Maybe it might have been on a cassette. Yeah. With 
Jimmy Page standing behind me while I'm trying to figure out his guitar part. That makes me nervous to, right now. To, 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 so we can hopefully have the keyboard player play it. Yeah. Uh, truthfully, I can't remember if if we ever got that together or not. Yeah. You yeah. know. Uh, I remember that I could that I did pick out the parts. Right. I don't know if that if if the, the, the if the result was the desired right, result right. but uh uh yeah uh, that was a <laughs> sweaty moment yeah and, and yeah a lot of pulling that needle back at home really came in handy wow. i'm just glad i didn't know that somebody didn't tell me when i was a kid when i was home pulling the needle back on the songs <laughs> hey guess what one day because i would have had a 14 yeah. year panic this is going to really matter to you one <laughs> yeah. yeah oh man um well, you know, the music of Led Zeppelin um, played a part in your life. You know, down the line, uh, there was a government mule project that you played on that where you guys actually did a complete live rendition of the Houses of the Holy album. Right. But even before then, uh, you and Warren Haynes co-wrote a song called Life on the Outside, which was on Government Mule's 2001 album, The Deep End, Volume 1. And we right. talked a bit about the division of labor and cry of love. Um, but here you are with another guitarist. And you know, finding a way to write a song together. I'm I'm curious about how the division of labor worked with you and Warren. Uh, that one was was really simple. I had made a demo of that of that music. I went to see those guys play one night when they were coming through the area, and Warren was like, "Hey, we're doing this record with all these bass players. Have you got any songs? We need some songs." And I said, "Man, yeah, let me. I'll give you the CD. It has four or five pieces of music on it, mm. you know." And uh, and he. Just took it and and got the melodic ideas together and wrote all the lyrics and wow. and mm -hmm. so uh, and rearranged maybe made what I was thinking was a chorus into the pre chorus I can't really remember I, I've got the demo in here somewhere wow. uh, and the interesting thing about that song was I, I wanted to do something that had the feel of I want to take you higher by sliding family stone not you know as a rock thing not yeah. I'm not getting ahead of myself and thinking that I was going to write that song. Don't get right. me wrong. But uh, just as a rock thing, I, I even figured the tempo out, if I can remember correctly, it was like 104 beats per minute or something. And uh, and there's a Larry Graham song uh, called The Jam, I think is what it's called, a Graham Central Station song, and it has the lick at the beginning of it on fuzz bass from going down, you know. Mm -hmm. do, 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 do. I, if I remember correctly. And I was like, I want to do something like that uh, at the top of the song, but there's already two songs that have, I better come up. So I made some variation on it. And the bass player that ended up playing on that song on the record was Larry Graham. Oh, cool. wow. isn't that crazy? <laughs> wow. That is crazy. Yeah. That the the version that's on the record is much faster than the than the sly tempo. Yeah, and I think he was right. Yeah, you know, for to. It's it's interesting to me to think about motivation for writing. You know, some people songs spill out of them, 
and they're just writing all the time. Mm -hmm. They almost can't keep up with it. Some people go through periods where they're writing prolifically, and then they maybe go through a period where they don't write for a while. Now, we're talking about a period here with this song in particular where you're playing with the Black Crows. Um, you're not, you know, Cry Love's over. You're not working on your, you know, a solo record or anything like that. At that point, were you writing songs with any particular projects in mind or were you just kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm coming up with some stuff. I'm going to put them down. Uh, it was the faucet was just open. You know yeah. what I mean? Or the antenna was up at that point in time. Best I can remember. Uh, th- no, there was no, I was not thinking I'm going to p- pitch this to so-and-so or pitch this to yeah. so-and-so. I didn't really understand even how that worked yeah. at that time. You know, I was a guy in a rock and roll band yeah. Yeah. from North Carolina, you know. Uh, 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 so I don't know. Uh, you know, part of it was the advent of, of home, multi-track home recording that was not done mechanically you yeah. know you could do it in a computer you yeah know? Uh, and so some of it was oh wow this is cool let's goof around with this software and see what we can come up with you sure. know yeah there was that um so i there, there was not a specific purpose yeah other than just doing it yeah you know? yeah you know, uh, in 2004, you kind of joined forces again with Chris Robinson from the Black Crows and his band New Earth Mud, and you guys co-wrote a song called Mother of Stone on his second solo album. Mother of Stone, now that we're grown, tell me, Mother of Stone, how long? Mother of Stone, now we're alone, show me, Mother of Stone. You've been in a lot of different kind of situations in bands. Sometimes it's kind of, you know, it's been your band. Cry of Love is your band. There are times when you're hired on to play for a tour. Uh, and then there are times when you find yourself, you know, you've been a part of a band and now you're with the singer in another band and you're writing together. But I'm sure there are plenty of times in every situation where you're like, I've got an idea. And you, it may not be the time to throw out an idea. Maybe the time to just play something the way it's that they want you to play it. How do you manage that balance? Because you are a songwriter. You're someone that comes up with great ideas on your own, but you're also sort of being handed at times just what the band would like you to play. Um, how do you find that balance between being a creative and also just being a useful guitar player that sometimes people just need you to do what they need you to do? Well, I think if you have your eyes open and your ears open and you can read even part of a room, you figure out really quickly like what's appropriate and what's not with people right. that write your paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> right, right. if that makes any sense. Uh and so if that's not going to be the, the uh, uh, arena for your, or, or the outlet for your creativity, you will go elsewhere. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and that's cool too. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of what I have, what I have done. But when there's an invitation, I guess, it's like, well, yeah, go yeah, walk through yeah. that door. And, and honestly, the, those two songs with Chris, I think there's another song that we co-wrote on that record. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, we were just goofing around at his house in California and he had that most of all of that. You know, I honestly, he gave me a credit on it. And I don't even know what I did to, to <laughs> you know, it wasn't like we sat down and, right. and it was like, I think maybe there was a, I think maybe the, there was a, there's a middle eight or something, you know, something 
was yeah. was you know and which and, is not uncommon a lot of a lot of song write, writes are like that you know yeah and, and i just i thought we were just kind of jam and we're gonna go in studio and, and and cut these tracks for his record yeah. that weekend and i thought he was just kind of showing me what he had and we were just kind of jamming and and uh luckily you know there was a little couple contributions yeah. kind of piggybacking on what paul was saying about you know when you're hired as a guitarist you have toured with a remarkable array of artists you have toured playing guitar with joe perry peter frampton jacob dylan dixie chicks uh to name a few and um i'm curious for you as a guy who you know you're an easygoing guy who's easy to get along with which i think has a lot to do with being able to fall into these different musical situations. You know, Peter Frampton's different than Dixie Chicks. It requires a different, you know, approach. And and you know, you're not a you can't be sort of a one-trick pony. You have to be uh, a flexible musician who can flow into these different situations and and gel with the other players. And you know, you don't do that by being uh bullheaded about um you know you have to be a, a kind of a, a team player um but i'm curious just as you think big picture about some of the folks that you've toured with are there things for you that kind of that you've picked up along the way from from this place or that place even though they might be different genres of music that you have then found incorporating into your own creativity like when you're say writing something for for an artist or for one of your own projects, just little lessons that you've kind of picked up by being a flexible guy who's open and receptive. And you think, man, I, you know, because I worked with so-and-so I've kind of got this little nugget of wisdom from them or from working with so-and-so I got this. And I've, I see that kind of cropping up and how I move about my creative life. Are there things that, that kind of stand out for you in that regard? I'm not going to say the things that stand out, but I think that all of that is absolutely true. And yeah. I think that uh, that I have learned lots of things, not just about the creative process, but about uh, you know approach to, to to playing parts in a song that already exists. Yeah. You know, uh, all all kinds of things from being around people that operate at a, you know at a, at a certain level, and and people that uh, uh, maybe approach musically in their own um, approach music in their own unique way. And you know, you know the old. Oh, I would have never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of thing. So, I think there's takeaways from all those situations. If you ask me to get really specific about it, I'm not sure that I can. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. it's more of an absorption. Yeah. Thing. Um, I remember we were cutting a Dixie Chicks track once um, at Sunset Sound, and Jim Scott was engineering. Um, and there was a second verse of the song. And I was playing some syncopated rhythm, not fancy, but just some sort of Rolling Stones-ish syncopated rhythm. Yeah. And he said, man, he said, can you play something straighter? It's fighting with the vocal. Hmm. And I thought, okay, and just played some eighth notes. And he made the wallet money sign you know. <laughs> yeah so that's one specific just small little thing that i learned oh yeah okay pay, you know pay even more attention mm-hmm. to what is happening with the with the with the singer yeah uh, 
you, that might not be true in every instance, you know, yeah. to play more simple. But uh, that's one thing that I specifically remember about the idea of simplicity. Yeah. And 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 don't be scared to do the obvious thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know. Um, so yeah, that's yeah one example out of a hundred. That's great. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Around uh, 2009, uh, you started playing guitar in the band Trigger Hippie, which also included uh, Black Crows drummer Steve Gorman and Joan Osborne. And you're a writer on two songs on their self-titled debut album, uh, Turpentine and Tennessee Mud. Um, was that a fairly collaborative experience uh, as a band? Did that, did that involve demos you had? How, how did those songs come together? Uh, man, I think we wrote those songs right here in this room. Uh, really? Oh. Uh, the Tennessee Mud one was a, a riff that I had at the top of that. Um, and then I think other folks mm-hmm. came in, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? Uh, so I think that was more of a spark on my mm-hmm. part, you know, like, okay, I've got this riff. Do you, do you want to make a song out of it? And then the other one, um, same thing. I think we were just sitting here noodling and I came up on that lick and in that turpentine, I think is the name of that song. And, uh, and we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Are you like a riff collector? Like, are you always? Is there always somewhere in your phone or somewhere? Yeah, if I could show them to you, you'd be glazed over in five minutes because <laughs> I got so many of them. Man. You know, I don't know how many of them are any good. I, I can tell you this: there are about six or eight of them that I know are worth. I mean, there's hundreds of them, and I, I shouldn't say that that hundreds of them are not worth you know paying attention to but every now and then you get on something and you're just like it just won't go away yeah and uh right now there's six or eight of those um it's funny how that works yeah but if you if i go mining through the things that i have yeah there's a lot there's a lot of stuff and and you know sometimes people come over and we we get the spelunking yeah, thing on what's that thing called the lamp? Yeah. yeah, and go down into the mine and and find one and yeah and and excavate it and make something out of it and it's it's really that's really fun. Well, I say that to songwriters sometimes that that collecting ideas outside of a writing situation is such an important thing to be doing right. because you can't expect lightning to just strike not just every because time. two musicians get together in a room. Not every time. The um, my friend Aaron Lee Tashian. I don't know if you're familiar with Aaron Lee, yeah. but uh. He's great, great guitar player, great songwriter, not necessarily in that order, great singer. Um, I co-wrote a song with him called Crawling at Your Feet that's on his last record. I think it's, no, record before last, pardon me. Um, And it, as the 
kids say was a repurposed riff. I, I had uh, had someone that was making a record once come to me and say, "Hey, can you give us? I need I need some ideas for some for some riffs for some songs that we can take and and, and make something out of." But basically, yet again, if I could provide them a spark, yeah. and I didn't have any delusions that I was going to be included past that. Right. Uh, yeah. So I remember like. 14 coming up with 14 things one day uh a few years back put them all on a hard drive aaron came over i had this title in my head crawling at your feet which could be there's several ways that that can 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 be used and uh and i played him this thing and i said i got something that's kind of up tempo kind of like almost like a toys in the attic aerosmith era type thing and he immediately said, and I did, this thing had been hanging around here for years. You know, I hadn't even really thought about it, but I was just like, oh, I got this, I got this. He said, let's slow it down. Hmm. And, you know, an hour later we had a song. Wow. Lyric, everything. He's a pretty brilliant lyric writer. So that was kind of a repurposed quote unquote yeah. riff that I had written sort of on commission without, you don't get paid, but you know, right. you're on, uh, to give to somebody else for an idea that got reworked. And so now we've got a song over here from that, from something that's in this catalog of, of things like, like you said, even if you're not, if you don't have a purpose in mind, yeah, if you've got the idea, at least document it exactly yeah i think sometimes you have to know when to document it when to push through and try to make more out of it or when to or when to say i like this part i want to run this by somebody that right that can help me make something maybe even bigger out of this Mm. yeah 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 um you know i think when we say southern rock most people think of leonard skinner allman brothers uh, kind of the twin pillars of of southern rock sure i think i mean i i feel the same way but there is a tradition that continues and i think about georgia satellites coming out in the 80s i think about black crows out of atlanta coming out at the end of the 80s i think about cry of love coming out of north carolina i think about brother kane you know i think about bands from that era that were the continuation of Southern rock uh, and almost the, the name Southern rock kind of disappeared, but that was the Southern rock, you know, that was the, the spirit of it kind of continuing on and for another generation in maybe a different form. And I think of you very much as, as kind of a torch bearer for Southern rock and not in the way that the casual observer might think of that term. 
um, because you play a lot of different styles, but there's a soulfulness and there's roots, kind of Southern rock roots in your playing um, that I think connect you. You're like the next generation of that tradition. But we've talked about you getting to play, you know, with your musical heroes, but this is a songwriting podcast. And when we look at getting to write a song with Leonard Skidder, which you did, it was on their 2012 album, uh, Last of a Dying Breed, the song Ready to Fly. This is a song that you wrote with Gary Rossington, who was in Skinner from the beginning, and, and Ricky Medlock, who was in Skinner at the very beginning, went away for a while and has been in Skinner now for, for years. But I mean, this is like the, the, the torchbearer for, what, for the seeds that those guys, you know, sowed. But you're in a room with these dudes. You're writing a song with Leonard Skinner. Uh, talk about that experience. Well, first off, that's a really kind of you to say to be, to be mentioned in a in a continuum with with all those people. You know, it really, really is it's a high compliment. I don't and I don't take that lightly at, at all. Um, yeah, I just I can't remember when I met those guys. Uh, uh, but for whatever reason, I, I went in to uh, to see if we could knock something together. They already had an idea for this song, Ready to Fly, and uh, and we banged it out. And yeah, it was very surreal. And you know, the whole time you're there, you're just like the mo is just don't screw this up, <laughs> and let's let's let me walk out of here and let's have something. Yeah, let's have have developed something that you can instinctively tell that people are into mm, you know yeah. that, that that the people in the room are into now i'm ready to fly Somewhere on my iPhone, while we're going through this, we worked on another thing that we never finished, uh, which I have on my iPhone also. And we just had acoustic guitar banging around. Gary Rossington had a practice amp there. Somewhere on my iPhone, there's a thing of me playing this riff that was the song that we didn't, that we never completed. And he is jamming along to it, like over on the other side of the room, and you can hear the room. Wow sound and wow. it freaked me out i was like well i will always have that yeah yeah you know as being as a kid yeah uh thinking that these people were literally larger than life and yeah and that there was no way that you would ever i mean for me it was no way i would ever see them play in concert yeah much less be in a room with them trying to create something so it was a it was a real thrill and yeah. and then 
my friend was playing drums on the, on the record and I got a text one day and he said, Hey, we're cutting your song. And I was like, who and what song? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Cause I didn't even know they were going to cut it. Yeah. Wow. And he was in there doing things. So that's how I found out that they put it on the uh, record. Wow. You know? So, wow. uh, you know, you don't want to gush about this stuff and where, where it seems like you're, uh, have it seem disingenuous that you're making mm-hmm. too much. Oh, I was in the room and it was an unbelievable sit, but believe me. Yeah. It was, uh, um, very, yet again, as the kids say, grateful. Obviously they're, they're human beings too, but you know, it's not disrespectful to not be scared either. Right. If right. that makes any sense. Yeah. So you want to bring it. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a reason you're in the room. I, I, I guess, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, but, but at, at the same time, you know, you don't want to make yourself small. Yeah. If that's not what is required of you. Yeah. Yeah. Bands played lots and lots of shows, and and a great show can kind of fade into another show and and can kind of be lost in the shuffle a bit. But a band's legacy and a band's existence on the earth is basically built of the songs, and to have had a part in one of the band's songs is something to really hang your hat upon, and and especially to think that it was a formative band in your own life. Um, is a pretty singular experience, a pretty unique uh, experience to be on both sides of that coin, to have sat in the seat of the fan and then sit in the seat of the co-writer, and with Jimmy Page as well, to sit in the seat of the fan and then sit in the seat of the collaborator. That's a good, um, good way to put it, man. You know, and, yeah, and that's, that's, a good way to put it. that's a pretty, just even sitting on, on this side and talking to you about it, well, I mean, honestly, we're fans of yours and we're sitting here talking to you, so we're, we're getting to sit in a new chair today as well. But... um you know that's that's a pretty in, incredible thing to be a part of, and and I think it's a testament, um, it's a testament to how how deeply you absorbed the music, how closely you connected with it, to the point that you were actually able to participate in it. And yeah, it's and, pretty and crazy. You know, I, I played in a house band a couple of years ago at the Opry. It was during the, the Billy Gibbons tribute thing. Hmm. You know, that music loomed really, really large to me when I was a kid. I've been around him a little bit here and there, but yet again, to be in the house band, no. And to be playing the solo to "I'm Bad, I'm Nationwide" while he's standing on the side of the stage watching you play, you know, it's Crazy. It's, it's a little kooky, you know. But <laughs> yeah. it's uh, so I, you know, to be in that bedroom mm-hmm. looking at that Fandango or Trace Ombre's album cover, and then be on the other side of that, you know, yeah. and then some songs playing with him, you got to just throw any kind of cynicism out out in the yard, yeah. you know. So the same year that you had the Leonard Skinner cut ready to fly, um, you and Keith Gaddis had a song called Celebrate uh, that you wrote with Kid Rock and, and was on his album Rebel Soul. There are a number of songs that we could talk about 
that you wrote with Keith Gaddis. And um, Keith was a highly respected songwriter, um, artist, um, multi-talented guy, played lead guitar at Dwight Yoakam, wrote hits for Kenny Chesney. I know you and him were close friends. Uh, a lot of the songs we're about to talk about were things that um, you and Keith wrote together. And uh, Keith unexpectedly passed after a, a tragic accident just a few months back, um, which I know is, you know, very difficult. Um, but he is an important part of your songwriting life and uh, your creative life. You guys had a band together and, and have written songs that, you know, have been recorded by um, Gary Allen and Allison Moorer and, and Wade Bowen most recently. And um, would love to just get a little bit of a sense because he's the guy that if we look at your recorded output outside of Cry of Love, he's the guy that, that crops up, you know. I don't know if I co-wrote more songs with him than I have with anybody else, but more of them got cut. Yeah. And that's not because of me. <laughs> that's because of Keith's abilities. I'm not diminishing what I brought to the table, but he had a fine track record on his own. Yeah. You know? um, and is very missed. Yeah. Yeah, he's very missed. How did you guys kind of connect and figure out that you had a good good thing going together that, that resulted in some good songs? We met on... a record session and he was playing guitar and Keith just called me after the session and was picking my brain about a baritone guitar that I had or something I can't remember what it was and next thing I know I don't can't really remember what it was I think it probably he probably just said hey you you want to get together and try to write something you yeah know? and and I think the first thing we wrote was that song that Wrecking Ball that Gary Allen cut I think that was the very first song we ever co-wrote together. And she goes into town, loves me up and down, just to watch me fall. She picks me up and then knocks me down again. I'm a wreck, y'all. She's a wrecking ball. She makes it easy to go down the hall. I'm just a sucker with a stupid heart who can't get enough. Well, she's a heartbreaker. Hell on wheels. She's a bulldozer around just in the way of Keith's influences were very different from mine. Mm-hmm. But he liked a lot of the, the the things that were in the world that I came from that mm-hmm. he might not have been exposed to to a great degree. Like yeah. I remember, we used to cover Mexican Blackbird, the ZZ Top song, on side two of Fandango. Uh, yeah, and he had never really heard that, I don't think. But it's so Texas, yeah, you know that he latched immediately latched onto it in the groove and 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 all that's an amazing rock and roll song. And so, uh, I think that he for certain types of songs liked what I would bring as far as another sensibility yeah, or maybe a, a person that was steeped in some things that he wasn't steeped in. Then he would write songs with other people where that wasn't required. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Sure. But I think that's probably what it was. Uh, point guard, shooting guard. Yeah. You yeah. know, I don't know if that's the 
I mean, I'm you don't want to shoot or run to point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you don't want to write with a guy who's exactly like you, because then what would you need with him? It's like well, you, so, you know, but be sometimes, pushed, you know? yeah, but sometimes Scott, that works. Sure, you know it can, but it is good to have to be able to have sets of strengths. Yeah, yeah, and that you can yeah. put together absolutely. That's why I really enjoy working with great lyricists. Well, so, yeah, I was going to ask you that if you know, I mean, in, in the early days when Elton John was looking for a writing partner, and it was. It was kind of obvious to everybody. This guy needs a lyricist. Elton's great at melodies. He's great at putting chord progressions together. But but a lyricist is what he's looking for. If you put out like a, a wanted ad, wanted songwriter to work with me, what do you look for in a writer that's going to complement your skills? You, you just said a great lyricist is something that, you know, is there something else where you know, like if you see, you start working with a guy and he's got a certain, you know, or, or a girl, a certain skill set, you go, okay, this is really going to fit with me. You know what? I think it is more than any kind of specific skill set. I think that it's a, somebody that you're gonna that you just feel simpatico with, mm-hmm. probably culturally, mm-hmm. sense of humor mm-hmm. wise. Uh, they are going to quote unquote get some things that you get. Yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and then the other stuff will shake down. Yeah, a great lyricist that I can't really enjoy going to dinner with is not going to be. You know, <laughs> going right. to be the the most productive situation probably, you know? Uh, so I think that that's what it is. It's just like, Oh yeah. The tribesmen. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I think that's, I think that's what it is more than anything else. Then you just get started and see what happens. Oh. You know, mm-hmm. if they do happen to be a great lyricist, I mean, uh, then, you know, then you're winning Yeah, for, yeah. for me. For yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you and Keith formed a band together called uh, Big Hat, and um, you guys put out an EP in 2012. And there's a song called "Feather in the Breeze" on that record, which, um, you know, talk about your influences. I mean, you got some Almond Brothers in there. You got Black Crow. You got everything that you've kind of absorbed. And like you said, there were things that were part of your world that Keith, uh, you know, weren't necessarily part of his, but he gravitated to. That's clearly an example of where, you know, that's kind of just a great example of what you do really well. That band was Peter Stroud, who was the other guitar player, the band leader in Cheryl Crow's band, mm. uh, who I play with. Uh, that was his idea. Mm. He wanted to do a, a, a side thing uh, yeah. for his creative as, as a creative outlet. And so he kind of put that whole thing together and engineered the whole thing. Uh, but that is my music. I yeah. think I wrote all the music in that song. Keith might have suggested, well, let's just go to four here or whatever. But, but the, the bones of the song yeah were mine and uh it took us a minute you know uh, uh to to get the get the vocal 
thing. I think Keith's idea of the feather and the breeze thing, I think that was his, he came to the table. We might have even had the title first, yeah. which is not really something that happened a whole lot. Um, mm. But I had, yet again, had made a demo of that years back, just of the, riff, of the main riff. Um, and that was one of those ones that I was talking about earlier that was like, this one won't go away. Mm, Something, yeah. you know, at some point, yeah. this is, this is, this, this is on, on the alias. Uh, like I was saying, you know, there's always six or eight things that are hanging around. Yeah. Uh, and so it finally found a home and it was a good outlet there. Um, and I, I, I wish I could remember more, but I just remember that we worked on that vocal part together, the vocal yeah, the, the the part, I'm sure that most of it was Keith. Mm. But he did something with that song that he didn't do a whole lot, which was do the thing that we were talking about earlier, come up with the music bed, and then figure out what you're going to sing over it. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that was not really the way that he normally... And now, we would take riffs. We would come up with riffs as, as inspiration for a song. Yeah, but as far as like a whole set of music, uh, that was not something that 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 he did a whole lot of. Although, if I'm remembering correctly, now I think maybe the chorus, which is basically I can't remember, it's a couple of chords, was yeah. maybe not done. Maybe we put that together, but then the rest of it was the stuff that I came up with. Yeah, yeah. So for I think more than a decade now. Uh, you've been playing guitar in Sheryl Crow's band, but Sheryl Crow's band, uh, kind of big hat sort of became Sheryl Crow's band in some ways. Some of it. Yeah. yeah. Most of the guys. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the bass player is all the Robert way back from, to, from cry of love, cry of from, love. <laughs> from sidewinder, the cover band back before that. Well, and not only that, but your wife, Jen Gunderman plays keys yep. in the band. So talk about family affair. I mean, it's like the guy you've been playing bass with since you were a kid, your wife, good buddies. I mean, you've got this situation where it's much more than being a hired gun. I mean, I would imagine there's kind of a family, you know, atmosphere, closeness, you know, about that where, um, you know, it's not like, well, I went out and did a six week tour with this person. And then that was it. I mean, this is a huge part of your life. Cheryl Crow, of course, is, you know, fabulous songwriter and, and a music legend inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and, you know, talk a little bit about um, how that, I mean, it obviously continues to creatively satisfy you. You've been doing it for a lot of years. Um, and just talk about what kind of space that occupies for you as a creative person to be a part of that environment and that band? Well, those songs are so great. And the construction of the song, well, the arrangements and the recordings are great. Um, so that makes it really fun. It's really fun to play really great music with a, <laughs> with a great singer. Yeah. You know, um, and we have the luxury of usually being able to do it in front of a pretty attentive crowd yeah you know uh i get to have the amp that i like and the guitars that i like and just kind of respect the songs play them the way that they're supposed to be played but 
not in a way where the where there's any kind of real governor put on that. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's not to be taken lightly. Sure. You know, because uh, a lot of people are not really a lot of artists are probably not that thrilled when people bring the uh, some of themselves to the yeah to the presentation. You know, so I feel like that uh, that I'm able to within the framework of the things that need to be there yeah able to uh kind of there's there's some interpretation mm-hmm. and room for that yeah there and it's uh and it's really fun plus the guitar sounds that i use um are ones that i would use huh. any, anyway yeah, yeah. You know, I remember seeing you guys in California, you know, a few months back, maybe a year ago. I don't remember. Right. But, uh, it's been a minute. Yeah, yeah. We came out and, uh, and saw you guys. And I remember, I can't remember which song it was, but it was one of her classic songs. And you played this like kind of honky tonk B bender guitar solo. I think it was a B bender if I'm remembering right, but it was like, and I don't remember which song it was, but it was nothing. It wasn't something that was on the record but it's not like it could have been on the record. And I just thought it even struck me in the moment of like, man, that's so inventive, but it fits right in. Like it doesn't stick out, you know, and you go, Oh, that definitely wasn't on the record, but it's so cool right there. And it doesn't feel like a guitar slinger trying to step up and take over. It feels like a guy who goes here, I'm putting my own spin on this. I'm still serving the song. You're right. Like you're, you're playing to the strength of the song, but you're, you're putting a little mark on it, you know? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, can't cry anymore is what yes. that is. Yes. At the end of that. Yeah. Well, what you just said, I think maybe is uh, is a perfect example of what I was talking about. Yeah. You know, uh, get to play a little B bender. You know, which is something that I enjoy hearing and yeah. enjoy playing uh, uh, to a degree. Uh, and I mean, I even sneak in some Richie Blackmore licks in there and stuff too. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's uh, it's fun. But to be able to to, to yeah, to do that, and hopefully you're adding to the uh, live presentation of the song and not subtracting from it by by being inappropriate. Yeah, you know, and so uh, yeah, I think that's a perfect example of what what I was saying earlier. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you try to not like play on your knees. <laughs> What's it? You try to not play on your knees or set it on fire. Oh uh, yeah, no, that's, that, that all. <laughs> I reserve all that for my <laughs> solo gigs. At the club, yeah. Well, you've done so much uh, over the course of your career. It feels like we're, we're just kind of have scratched the surface here, but um, in the songwriting realm, talk about something that, that is, is something recent that, that is something you've been excited about or. Oh, let's see. You know, circling back to the Keith thing, just out of respect for him and, and and what a blow that has been to everyone in our community. You know, everything that I did with him was 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 it was always really creative and 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 really rewarding. And I learned a lot from that guy. Yeah. I learned I learned a whole lot. Um, specifically, uh, let's see, Sadler Vaden, who is the best known at this point as the lead guitar player from Jason Isbell and the Four Hundred Unit. Uh, and he's been producing some records here in town that have done really well. This young woman, Morgan Wade, sadly produced a record. Uh, I co-wrote the 
what ended up being the title song on his last record called Is Anybody Out There? And uh, that was really fun. He wanted, he was like, man, we need something with a really, I, I need something with a really solid riff. Seems like I'm the guy that people come to sometimes when they're, when, when, and which is nice. It's nice because I enjoy doing it and I feel like I know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, um, he, he said, I just need something with a, with a good solid riff, like sort of Joe Walshy sounding thing. And, uh, uh, so we just sat down and face to face, I came up with the riff, most of it. And then he chimed in a couple of things, you know, like let's make this chromatic, whatever. And same thing that I learned as far as the simplicity and the editing and paring it down. I just remember I was down at Shelby Bottoms jogging one day thinking about it. And I'm specifically remember exactly where I was, uh, that part is too complicated. Hmm. We need to re hmm. redo that. So we came back and just edited, fine tuned it, yeah. put it all together, spent a, spent a couple of days on the lyric and, uh, um, and, got something really fun really fun track and lo and behold he made it the title song for his record got that riff simplified you made the money sign with your fingers yeah, i did not make the money <laughs> sign. No. I did not make it. it wasn't that it wasn't that simple <laughs> you know. yeah well oddly uh thank you for having us into your home and sure opening up about your career and your songwriting and your guitar playing um we're we're fans we've been fans a long time yep. and uh i'm i think we're fans of you uh, personally even more than your guitar playing if that's possible because you're just a, a great guy to hang out with so thank you likewise man you know i've been enjoying your podcast for a long time and actually there's quite a bit of back catalog that i gotta that i gotta make my way through and you're doing the good work and yeah. i listen to a lot of podcasts a fair amount and i have to say that you guys are your investment in the subject, not ne not necessarily just the person, but the, the person's work and the respectfulness that you bring to that uh, is is really refreshing. It's really fun to listen to. And and I think the people that you talk to appreciate that too. Mm -hmm. I know the listeners too, you know, yeah. for, for yeah. sure. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 